Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 89. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to mention a few things. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. And now you can actually go out to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. And if you do like this podcast enough and you want to help keep the lights on, want to help keep this podcast going, there is a donate button there. So you can donate whatever you would like, 50 cents, a quarter, I don't care, something to help keep the lights on and help keep the podcast going. But again, that's at brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Also, just want to remind you that the promotional materials are available for my forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. You can go out to blamehamilton.com and get that information. Just click on the little button. It'll take you over to the page that explains all the things that you get if you pre-order a book. If you pre-order one book, I'll give you a free ebook. If you pre-order two or more books, you'll get a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton in addition to the ebook. So go on out there and get that material. Uh, the book comes out September 18th, and when it does hit the shelves, those promotions go away. So you, you have a little time, but it might be good to get those while the getting's good. So uh, head on over to BlameHamilton.com and pick up that information. Okay. Let me talk about the uh, information for today, or the topic for today, and it's actually a book that I've been reading entitled A Brave Vessel by Hobson Woodward, and this book came out in 2009, and it's about the tale of the Sea Venture, and the well, if you don't know what the Sea Venture was, it was in the third relief expedition to Jamestown in 1609. Jamestown Colony had been founded, of course, in 1607, and then uh, the colony was struggling mightily, and so the Virginia Company uh, sent a, a several relief expeditions. This was the third. It was supposed to be the most uh, impressive of the bunch, and the ship, the lead ship, was called the Sea Venture, and just so happened that Christopher Newport was on that vessel, along with the future governor of the colony, a man named Gates, and also the admiral of the fleet, a man named Summers. And uh, the fleet was actually caught up in a terrible hurricane, and the Sea Venture eventually shipwrecked on Bermuda. And so this is a book about that, but it's also about several other things that I want to talk about. It's not just a great tale of adventure, which is um, you know what this really was, and I'll get into some of that, but it's also uh, instructive for looking at American culture and where some of these things come from. 
So the lead character in this particular book, the main character, is a man named William Scratchy. I'm sorry, Stratchy. Uh, William Stratchy was a playwright, author, poet, and Stratchy decided at one point that he was going to go on this trip because he wanted to make a name for himself writing travel journals. And he, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, make any money uh, writing poetry or fiction uh, or plays, so he thought he had to do something sensational. So he signs up to go on this venture to Jamestown, hopefully writing some travel journals that would get picked up and published back in England. So Strachey, because he was a, a man of the gentry, essentially, he had a very good reputation. Uh, he was not just uh, some uh, straggler who signed up for the, for the venture to try to get some money out of it. Uh, Strachey was, was uh, actually accepted into the, to the circles of people like Admiral Summers and Governor Gates and uh, Christopher Newport. So he was someone of means. Well, <clears throat> Strachey does write a very good account of the shipwreck on Bermuda, and another uh, playwright will pick up on that. His name just so happened to also have the initials W.S., and his name was William Shakespeare. And uh, Woodward contends, and I think very conclusively, that William Shakespeare gained much of the inspiration for the play The Tempest from William Strachey's tales of shipwreck, the shipwreck at Bermuda. And also the storm that these men went through, men and women, went through when the sea venture was caught in the hurricane uh, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, I want to talk about that connection with Shakespeare in American culture because I think it's an important connection. And then I also want to talk a little bit about uh, you know, these, these cross-Atlantic voyages in the 17th century and how we should think about those things. So first, let's actually start with that. So... Most Americans, of course, believe that the if, if you were to go out and do a man-on-the-street interview, kind of a Jay Leno thing, or you know one of these things that people do all the time now to show how stupid uh, college students are, or whatever the case may be, uh, if you were to go out and say, who are the first Englishmen in America? Probably, I would suggest, over 50% would suggest the pilgrims. Because, of course, we go through Thanksgiving, and uh, we have our turkey, and uh, you know we, we believe the pilgrims really established America because we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we like the little buckled shoes and little hats and these kind of things. But, of course, this is completely false. The, the pilgrims didn't land in Massachusetts until 1620. <clears throat> the people in Jamestown were there in 1607, so 13 years before the pilgrims crossed the Atlantic Ocean on the Mayflower with the adventurers, who were also the forgotten part of that particular uh, expedition, and uh, arrived at, uh, at Plymouth on, uh, in Massachusetts Bay, you had the Virginia colony. In fact, Virginia was first in pretty much everything in, in North America when it came to English culture. They had the first Thanksgiving in 1619. They had the first civil government in Virginia in 1619. Uh, of course, it was also the first colony. And so uh, when we start talking about America first, the first Americans of, as Englishmen, we have to look at Jamestown. And of course, that's going to establish a culture as well. And so I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, this Jamestown colony, of course, if you go to Virginia today, you can go visit a recreation of the fort. You can see for yourself what it was like here. But this was an absolutely miserable experience. And I think for most people, we don't really think about that. Uh, in colonial history and what these people were willing to go through and what they did go through 
in trying to establish a foothold in North America. Now, in some cases, there was some financial motivation here. Of course, the Virginia Company stood to make a lot of money if the uh, Virginia Colony did well. And individuals who signed on and got stock in the Virginia Company also stood to make a lot of money if the Virginia Company did well. But we know it didn't do well. In fact, uh, the first group that landed, uh, over half of them died uh, in the first year. And then, of course, by the time the members of the Sea Venture got to the fort in 1610, they had gone through the starving when uh, they had an awful winter and the uh, Powhatan tribe around them had essentially bottled them up in the fort, and these people couldn't hunt or anything. And so most, uh, not most, well, a large percentage of the uh, colony starved to death. They were resorting to cannibalism and other things. So this was a pretty terrible time uh, for the people there. And I think that when you look at this, and the easiest way to compare this would be maybe a mission to Mars today. So people are talking about Mars today and what that would involve and actually going to Mars. It's a one-way ticket. It's a one-way trip, and for a lot of people that were going over to North America, it was a one-way trip. Now, of course, you could sail back, but that was not always going to be easy. Uh, or, um, in a case of you know storms and other things, you might lose your life on the way back as well. So, just getting there was going to be difficult, as we're as I'm going to talk about with the Sea Venture. Uh, but when you're there, of course, you're having to face uh, a hostile. Uh, tribes who want to kill you. You've got to uh, try to support yourself, sustain life in an area that uh, had brackish water and uh, was uh, you know poor quality, a lot of mosquitoes, very marshy. This is a pretty miserable situation for the people that arrived in Jamestown. And we're talking about the 1600s, which um, you know the the Middle Ages ended around the 1350s to 1400s. So we're we're a couple of hundred years into uh, the post-Middle Age period, the Renaissance period. And I think in so many ways, the 1600s was still part of the Renaissance. It was definitely part of the English Golden Age uh, that we were going through because of Shakespeare. But uh, the, the conditions in so many ways were still very much like the medieval period. I mean, these people hadn't really advanced beyond that in terms of material living. Uh, they had gunpowder weapons, of course, and things like that. And of course, their sailing vessels were better. Uh, but in just everyday living standards, they weren't a whole lot better. And you see that when they get to uh, Bermuda and then, of course, the description of living conditions in Jamestown. So we have this fort. Of course, everything had to be built by hand. Um, and when the, when the Sea Venture uh, was sailing across the Atlantic, first of all, the Sea Venture was a ship that was 100 feet long. Now, to put that in perspective... If you ever watch the show uh, The Deadliest Catch on, uh, on TV today, it's a great show. And most of the fishing vessels there, these crabbing ships, are actually bigger than the Sea Venture uh, by a few feet. Most of them are 100 feet plus. The Sea Venture was 100 feet, and it was the largest ship in the fleet. Uh, some of the ships were no more than 20 to 30 feet. And you think about sailing across the Atlantic Ocean on a 20-foot vessel. Uh, sailing vessel with no type of power whatsoever. And in the dark of the night, you have no lights to know exactly where you're going, uh, except for the stars. This was going to be a very treacherous situation. And uh, these ships went a maximum of about three knots, which uh, is a, I mean, you can almost walk faster than that. Uh, and so they didn't move very quickly. Uh, the Sea Venture leaked like crazy. Uh, in fact, um, if you ever go back and do any genealogical research and you find uh, people's jobs uh, 
uh, it was interesting. I found some some family research, and there was a, one individual, and his job was a caulker. And so when you look up what a caulker was, a caulker was the guy that was on the ship. That his job was to make sure the boat didn't leak and sink. And so the Sea Venture was not caulked very well when they started getting the Atlantic Ocean, and it started leaking. In fact, uh, at one point, the water... Uh, it was, as they describe it, was maybe waist deep in parts of the ship. So the ship was actually sinking on the way over before it even hit this hurricane. So the whole fleet hits the hurricane. And when you read the, the tales of, the, of what these people went through, it was just downright awful. Uh, if you've ever been sailing before and you've been in a storm or you've been in some rough seas, uh, even if you're just sailing in nice weather, uh, there's various ways to sail a ship. And uh, one of those ways is to cut right into the waves and go through them. Of course, that's very rough. You're going to get splashed in the face. Uh, it, it's, it's a rough trip. Or you can turn your sail with the wind. It's called going downwind. And you just go with the waves. And so if you got in a hurricane like these ships did, you could choose one of the paths. And the Sea Venture, the Admiral Summers, decided to go with the wind. And at one point a rogue wave hit the back of the ship, and they couldn't even see this thing coming. It actually went over top of the ship, sank the ship entirely. The whole ship was underwater, and uh, the water was up through the hatches, and the wave went past, and the ship, of course, pops up. It didn't capsize, luckily, and it just kind of sat there for a minute, and then the next wave came behind it. But if you can imagine how terrifying that was, uh, in fact, one of the guys, the reason the ship didn't capsize is because one man was able to hold on to the... To the uh, well, they didn't have a ship's wheel. They had basically a pole that they, he was able to hold onto that pole and keep the ship straight so it didn't turn and flip over. Uh, but uh, this would have been a terrifying situation. Of course, everyone is down below and everyone's seasick. Uh, this was just horrible. And so you think about the bravery of these people willing to go on this trip. And there were pregnant women on the ship. Uh, of course, there were children on the ship. Uh, this was not an easy situation to go through. And these people were willing to do it to have a better way of life, maybe to make money, maybe to, to uh, get off, as a lot of people would uh, in the 1640s moving forward. They would want to get out of England and, and get into uh, a new land to try to recreate the English lifestyle that they had, particularly these distressed cavaliers. And so I'm going to talk about that with culture in a second. But uh, this was a very rough situation for these people. And I don't think we, we really we, we think about that enough when we talk about early American colonial history and the risks these people were willing to take. So the Sea Venture uh, was uh, eventually found land at Bermuda. And so it landed in Bermuda and was able to stay there. The, the, most of the people survived. Uh, in fact, um, uh, only a few people actually died on Bermuda. Uh, but most people did survive this terrible ordeal, even on the ship itself. And they got to Bermuda, and they stayed there for about a year. And when you read what these people went through, even on the island, they had some, some luxuries because they had supplies on the ship, but they had, to build, uh, they had to build dwellings to live in. They had to create an entire new environment there. Uh, they had to hunt and fish and do all the things they could do just to survive. Uh, it's also interesting to read about the animal life and what they came across. The birds, apparently, on Bermuda were not scared of human beings at all because they had never come across a human before. And so uh, the, the people were able just to walk right up to the birds and take them and, of course, uh, you know, consume them later. But same thing with the pigs that were on the island. The Spanish had actually tried 
to introduce hogs to Bermuda at one point. Their settlement didn't work out, but the pigs were left, and these pigs would just walk right up to you. Uh, they weren't afraid of people at all. So it's kind of interesting to think about that. Here we are, you know, 400 years ago, and what uh, animal life was like on these islands and places, these remote areas, and how uh, how different that is today. You would be hard-pressed to get a hog to walk, a wild hog to walk up to you. You wouldn't want it. Uh, they're very aggressive. But uh, the fact is that they would just walk up to you. Now, same thing with the birds. They had no fear of humans because they had never been around a human before. Uh, and that's that's rather interesting. Uh, also, they, they ate a lot of sea turtle, uh, which is, you know, today to our sensibilities, we would find that to be barbaric. But uh, they would get these 300-pound sea turtles and throw them on their back and then uh, force them to die. And then they would, they would carve them up and eat the sea turtles. Uh, so uh, they ate uh, different kinds of plants. So they ate palmetto berries and all kinds of different things. The interesting thing about that, I think, is that, you know, today we have... Uh, this fascination and a very good, a very valid fascination with trying to find natural remedies for things. You know, people have become suspicious of pharmaceutical companies and other things. And when you go back and look at what these people were doing, they were using a lot of natural remedies. Uh, for example, one of the things they packed a lot of on these ships was ginger. And if you're anyone that suffers with nausea at any times or at any time, anything like that, you know that ginger is very good for solving nausea. And that's exactly why they put it on these ships. They packed all kinds of ginger root. Uh, they made ginger ales uh, on, on the way over to keep people from being seasick. Now, of course, it, it doesn't always work, but uh, ginger is a great remedy. Uh, if I could recommend, they're not a sponsor of the podcast, but it is a drink that I enjoy quite a bit. It's Reed's Ginger ginger Beer is what it's called, but it's, it's non-alcoholic. Uh, it's a great ginger drink. Reed's comes from California. Uh, but you can get it at uh, sometimes your your fresh vitamin stores and things like that. Uh, I think uh, some you know some upscale supermarkets carry it. But uh, I would highly recommend if you if you like ginger ale, this stuff is just fantastic. And if you have any issues with nausea at any time, you know not feeling good, maybe a little queasy that day, a little car sick or something, the Reeds is fantastic for that. So I highly recommend going out there and getting some. Uh, reeds ginger ale, but you look at the at the manifest for the ship, and they carried a lot of ginger. So these people go and they they're, they're shipwrecked in Bermuda, and they go through several periods of mutiny and other things, and finally they leave for Bermuda. A lot of people didn't want to go because they thought this was easy. There were no Indian tribes there. We can just live here, establish a colony here, and this would be great. Well, they're forced to go on to Jamestown, and when they get there, they come right at the end of the starving period, and miraculously, all the other ships. In this, uh, in this uh, convoy that was going to Jamestown with the Sea Venture in the lead, made it to, made it to Jamestown with the exception of uh, one little vessel that was being towed behind the Sea Venture. It did not make it. But uh, everyone else made it there. Of course, a lot of the people died then in the starving. So uh, this is a pretty rough period. And uh, the governor, Gates, decides right at the last minute, as he gets there, he says, you know what, we're just going to have to leave. He was going to abandon the colony. And I guess in one of the great twists of fate, as they're heading down the James River, Lord Delaware shows up to be the governor. He's going to replace Thomas Gates. In fact, Gates was just kind of a stand-in for Delaware. They wanted Delaware to be the uh, governor from the beginning. So Delaware shows up, and of course, we now have a, a full-time governor. Uh, and they make the colony work. And as you read uh, Strachey's accounts of all this stuff, uh, you find that um, you know, this was a pretty brutal time. The, there are many Indian attacks. Uh, the Powhatan Indian around there were uh, well-stocked. They had uh, uh, very good agricultural resources, hunting resources. They were great warriors. 
Uh, and But what you do find is that most of the time the English got the best of them. And it was brutal warfare. There was, uh, you know, large-scale executions on both sides. Uh, this was not a, a kind relationship for either group. The English were pretty brutal toward the Indian tribes, and the Indian tribes were fairly brutal towards the English as well. This was not something that uh, was amicable on either side. So Strachey makes it. He becomes the secretary of, of uh, the Jamestown colony. And eventually he heads back to England, and he brings with him all of his journals and everything else. And this is where we get to William Shakespeare. So I mentioned I was going to talk about the connection between Shakespeare and American culture. Well, it's important to note that the culture that was the dominant culture of Jamestown was very much the culture of the cavalier, the gentry, uh, because they ran the colony. And uh, they set the rules. And so when you look at this early culture of Jamestown, it's very similar to the uh, to the culture of England that you would call Cavalier culture. And there's a wonderful book on this by a guy named David Hackett Fitcher. It's called Albion's Seed. And he gets into the traits of Cavalier culture. And, of course, this will develop more fully in Virginia as Virginia continues to grow as a colony and as more and more people settle in Virginia. But you do find here in Virginia that you have Cavalier culture. Strachey was very much part of this Cavalier culture. Uh, and so was Gates and Summers and Christopher Newport and all these people. They were definitely uh, part of that group of people and how they conducted themselves. And uh, you have, uh, there was a wedding, for example, on Bermuda. And how the wedding is described is very much in line with how uh, David Hackett Fitcher describes weddings in Cavalier society. And it also must be noted that William Shakespeare was very much part of this Cavalier society. And the accent that Shakespeare would have had, and Strachey would have had, and Gates and Summers, you often hear Shakespearean theater, and they have this British accent that uh, is very much like this. They would speak with a British haughty accent. Yes, uh, double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Uh, they would have, you know, the, uh, yes, uh, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. So they would they would have some type of accent like that. That's what people think. But that's actually not what they would have sounded like. They would have sounded very much like a Southerner. Uh, the Southern accent has a lot in common with the aristocratic British accent of the 17th century. And there's been some wonderful work done on this. In fact, the word ain't was a very popular word in upper-class England, uh, Great Britain, in the uh, 16 and then 1700s. Ain't that something, the, the upper-class would have said. And so this was carried across, and the Cavaliers established themselves. And so when you look at early language in Virginia, which is very much part of the Southern accent, you find the Cavalier influence. And Shakespeare would have spoken that way, too. And so when you read Shakespeare, I often tell my students, when you go out and you read Shakespeare, go out and get your best Southern accent you can get and read it that way. Because that's exactly the way Shakespeare would have read it himself. So there's a, there's a radio talk show out of Birmingham, Alabama called the Rick and Bubba Show. And uh, they often do this parody Will Bubba, who has a, a Alabama, very strong Alabama accent, will read Shakespeare to kind of make fun of it. Oh, we're a bunch of rednecks reading Shakespeare. But that's exactly how Shakespeare would have read it. So they're actually reading it properly. They don't know that. They think it's a comedy bit and everybody says, oh yeah, these dumb rednecks. But really what they're doing is reading uh, this, uh, this Shakespearean sonnets or plays the way that Shakespeare would have read them himself. 
So Shakespeare gets Strachey's work. He gets this letter that he wrote about from the actual events in Bermuda. And Shakespeare writes the play The Tempest. And I think Dob, uh, Hobson Woodward does a wonderful job bringing this out, how important the New World was to the Elizabethan age, and not just that, to the culture of the Elizabethan age, and then how the Elizabethan age was really part of Jamestown culture. You can't get around it. Uh, this was very much part and parcel of the same thing. So... When we look at American culture and we look at people like Shakespeare and we look at Queen Elizabeth, we look at King James. Uh, and, uh, you know, King James by this point, this is why it's Jamestown and the James River. Uh, we look at uh, that particular period of time, you find that, that that particular culture saturated the New World. The, the pilgrims were something else. The Puritans in many ways or something else. And what you find in American history, and this actually gets into a little discussion of American history, the idea that somehow all Americans were the same until the issue of slavery is just complete hogwash. In fact, Puritan Massachusetts and Cavalier Virginia could not stand each other. Cavaliers in Virginia couldn't stand Puritans. They hated them. Uh, people like William Barclay, who was one of the governors of Virginia at one point, he detested Puritans. He fought a war against them in the English Civil Wars. And you had a large number of cavaliers coming over, English uh, gentrymen coming over to Virginia to try to establish a life here that they could not have in England during the Cromwell area era or before that, as you had something called uh, entail or primogeniture, where the oldest son in England would get all the land at the father's death and the younger sons would get nothing. So uh, this is a very interesting situation. We often don't think about the cultural conflict in America that was there in brewing. Even in the 17th century, the 1600s, you had one in British North America. And it just so happens that various issues are going to get put in within that, whether it's economics, whether it's views on government, whether it's views on society, whether it's power politics, which I've already done the podcast on why slavery. All of those things were, were actually part of a broader cultural conflict between North and South. And you had other cultures, of course, in North America as well. You had the Quaker culture, which was very dominant in uh, the Mid-Atlantic states, particularly Pennsylvania. And then you had the Celts, uh, who were all over the mountain regions. And of course, the Celts were much more similar to the Cavaliers than anyone else uh, in terms of um, the way they viewed society. But and they had a lot of impact on Southern culture. Plus, you had African culture. Uh, you did have, uh, in some areas, uh, the influence of American Indian culture. So you had this pretty broad cultural mix. But definitely, you had cultural conflict, which produced political conflict, long before you took any of these issues into play, moving into the 18th and 19th century, particularly in the 19th century. Those uh, very rigid cultural identities had already been established North and South by that point. And so when you look at a lot of the con political conflicts of the 1850s, 40s, 30s, these were just a, a byproduct of the greater cultural conflict that had already existed in America for a lot longer period of time. Uh, you also had, of course, French and Spanish influence in places like Louisiana and Florida. So uh, it, it wasn't just this monolithic, everyone's English, and we all think of ourselves as English. No, that wasn't the case at all. A lot of the English couldn't stand each other. Uh, particularly when you started looking at Puritans and Cavaliers, and the Celts couldn't stand any of those people, and the Quakers were suspicious of all of them. 
And then you throw into the mix, like I said, the French, the Spanish, uh, these type of European cultures. You've got African culture starting to mix in the South and creating a much more different uh, mix there as well, plus American Indian culture in some parts. So all of these things would uh, factor in to creating uh, sectional divisions that were apparent long before you had any other type of issues. And when you go out and you study English history and you start looking at the 17th century and the Elizabethan period, you're basically reading, in so many ways, what Southern culture was like. Uh, I, again, I think Fisher has done a fantastic job in connecting the dots. If you look at other parts of England, you look at the eastern part of England, you'll find uh, a lot of the Puritans from that particular area. So when you study English history there, you'll find Puritan culture was quite prominent in that region. And that was a lot different from what you would find, say, in London, which was very much dominated by Cavalier culture. And then if you look at the northern part of England, you'll find even a different cultural mix. The Celts are, of course, on the frontier regions in Ireland and Scotland and Wales. You're going to find a lot of the Celts. So all of this is rather inter very interesting when you start talking about the impact of British culture on America and then moving forward and talking about American history. But the thing that, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love this book so much. It wasn't just a great tale of adventure. And you read this and you start really feeling for these people that had to go through this terrible journey just to make it to Jamestown to begin with on a 100-foot boat in a hurricane. Uh, there's nothing to compare to that today except going to Mars. There really isn't. I mean, you move somewhere, you can go to the Home Depot and get your uh, supplies, uh, you know, any any uh, any supplies you might need to upgrade your house. You can go to Walmart or, you know, somewhere to get some supplies you need for your house. You need a few things. We all have running water and, and uh, you know, fresh running water. Uh, we can go to the grocery store and buy food that we need. It doesn't matter where we move. We got a, a supermarket or somewhere uh, to go buy some food. We don't have to survive uh, on on just what we can go out in our yard and grow and uh, and hunt, um, and uh, this is why again I, I like shows like uh, The Walking Dead because it shows us end of civilization what people would have to do. And you want to read end of civilization, read a story about Jamestown because it really was at some point the end of civilization, and it was only not the end of civilization because people like Gates and others in Delaware would come in and establish reestablish Cavalier society there and reestablish English culture and English civilization. That's the only reason it didn't degrade into something worse. It was, it was terrible in the starving time, the starving period, when people were eating, you know, digging up bodies and eating them. And that was horrible. Uh, they wouldn't even venture outside the palisade. They would just tear apart their houses and use them for firewood. So this was really tough. And you find in a stressful situation this was going to happen. But people were able to come in and reestablish civilization with a hostile tribe on the outside, and how they could actually function in that. Uh, and so that's the Middle Ages. I mean, these people in Jamestown were living very much in the Middle Ages. It was like having the Vikings on their back door, and they're having to try to survive and push back against these people. But uh, the Vikings were a much hardier group of warriors than the American Indians. You had disease and other things you had to deal with. So this was, this was really tough. Uh, so this, this tale of the sea venture, the title of the book is A Brave Vessel, again, by... Hobson Woodward, uh, this tale of the sea venture has so much into it, so much meat, if you just know where to look. Uh, it's just a wonderful story, and it's not very long. It's a couple hundred pages maximum, uh, and, well, you know, it's, it reads fast. You could get through it in just a couple of days if you're dedicated, a uh, day if you're, if you're really dedicated. 
and it's well worth your time. So I wouldn't just pick that up. I'd also get David Hackett Fisher's uh, Albion Sea, which is a light 900 pages or so. Uh, but if you do like cultural history, it is the best on British North American culture in the colonial period. So I hope you like, uh, like this podcast. Uh, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.